From the 980 CFPL studios in the heart of downtown London, Wellington and Dundas, London Live is on the air. It's the show that's in your backyard and on your side. Now, here's your guest host, Jess Brady. Welcome to London Live. It is your Monday afternoon edition of the show. As you heard, I am your guest host. Yes, I am Jess Brady. Mike Stubbs is on vacation this week. Well-deserved time off. Hardest working man in radio. So they have me swapping in for him this week uh, on the airwaves in the afternoon. As usual, my usual shift, I should say, is in the mornings. Uh, I am a co-anchor of the morning news on 980 CFPL. But uh, on these these occasions when Mike is away, they let me swap in to the other side of the booth and I get to yak with you for a couple hours in the afternoons, which is a lot of fun. I enjoy it. It's so much uh, so much, so much, much going on during the day that uh, you get to talk about things a little bit more in depth. Instead of just the news stories, we go behind the news, if you will, to chit chat. I hope everyone had a great weekend. It was smoking hot out. Oof, we're going to talk more about that, uh, specifically how much hydro we consumed over the course of those three days uh, and uh, just how the grid, the hydro grid was impacted by that demand for usage with those uh, just sweltering temperatures. It was crazy, crazy hot. We'll also take a look at how Home County Music and Art Festival did because they were in the mix uh, with this crazy system uh, that came through with the heat and everything. It was pretty pretty wild. We'll also talk uh, about a really strange posting that came up online late last week uh, about uh, an ad for wanted like servers and and they were hiring allegedly at Black Trumpet, which is a great restaurant here in town. That ad was fake. And we're going to talk about the dangers of that and what that means uh, for the community moving forward as we as police try and figure out who was behind that. Before we get into all those other topics, though, we're starting the show talking about how today is actually a, a really somber anniversary. You would have heard uh, Jake Jeffrey this morning talking about it in the news and certainly Jacqueline LaBelle in the afternoons. Now, the uh, the Danforth shooting it was a year ago today. Believe that or not, a time it just seems to, to fly by. But for the community of Toronto and also for the victims and their families, you know, these sorts of events, I don't know how you're how you're able to move forward with them. You just have to they're trying to process and heal physically, emotionally, uh, you know, to move forward from that just horrific incident that happened July 22nd, 2018, um, when a shooter was on the Danforth and, uh, you know, the incident killed two people. Thirteen others were were injured. Speaking with me this afternoon about this anniversary and how the community is dealing with it is Global News Radio's Brianna Carnegie. She joins me on the line now. Brianna, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us this afternoon. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me on. Now, you're out and about in the community today talking with people about how they're dealing uh, a year later with the impact of this shooting. What's today been like for you in in talking with people who are there? Right off the bat, when you mentioned uh, leading into this, that I don't know how you can recover from an incident that's just so tragic and this really rocked the community. And, and that's the sense that I'm getting talking with people in the Danforth here. It's it seems like another normal day. Everybody's going about. Uh, there's kids playing in the park. There's people heading off for work this morning. But it's not a day like any other. It, it marks one year since a, a mass shooting on Toronto's Danforth Avenue in the Great Town here. And the community has forever been changed by that. I, I don't know if there's any way to bounce back. 
Um, but certainly support and hope from the community. Those are the next steps in trying to recover and, and getting past that. Absolutely. And in the lead up to today, uh, you know, there were, were statements made by local um, community leaders, also uh, local politicians uh, saw that, um, you know, Toronto's police chief also issued a statement to kind of not only mark uh, the first anniversary, but also trying to, I would imagine, give some comfort to people as they move forward saying, you know, we won't forget, uh, but we are trying to heal. We are trying to heal. And I think one of the main messages that, that really touched me, that was from Toronto Mayor John Tory. And he said it was the very last line of his statement this morning that love triumphs over hate each and every day. And I think that's a message that every person in this community should be taking with them. Um, I, there was some messages as well. So since I have been here all day, I had a chance to go over to Alexander the Great Parquet. It's uh, Danforth and Logan Avenues for those who know the Toronto Greektown community very well. And that's where the violence began this day last year. So going to that parquette, there's tons of flowers that are lining the trees there. Um, There is also these wooden stars that really caught my attention because they were painted so bright, some with rainbow colors, uh, some with clouds on them. And this one from a young boy, they were from all over the world, I should mention. There was one from a young boy in California. And his message that he wrote in his scribbly handwriting on the back It says, be brave, keep fighting, I am praying for you. And he included a smiley face. Um, There was also one from Orlando, and that message of support read, uh, sending thoughts from Orlando, Florida, hashtag we are one, hashtag Toronto strong. And that one caught my eye, especially because Orlando is dealing with its own tragedy and trying to recover from that. You may remember the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, Mm -hmm. and that's where 49 people died. So having that message of support from one community to another, I think, really goes a long way. You know, I think that that is so bang on, Brianna. And I was thinking about this anniversary and also just hearkening back in my mind to when it actually happened. Um, it, it, it was not that long before, a couple months before that we had the, the van attack. Uh, it was a very tough time for Toronto in terms of dealing with these massive incidents. And for me, the, these messages from around the world and, and Orlando and things like that, it, it's the incidents themselves, the violence took place during very regular activities. So Danforth, you know, people were out celebrating birthdays. They were at cafes. They were shopping. Uh, these incidents, the the van attack, people were just going about their business. And it's this everyman feeling now that we have, whether you're in Orlando or in Toronto or where have you, wherever you may be, these sorts of things are happening. And people identify with the senselessness and also just the horror of something so violent happening in such mundane circumstances. For sure. Anyone can relate to that where you're out for a gorgeous summer night, you're out grabbing ice cream with friends, maybe you're celebrating a birthday, maybe you're having like a dinner or just hanging out at a beautiful parquet. Anyone does that on a summer night. And when violence erupts like this, that's really what triggers people, I think. Um, And it's, it's minutes that things can change. So this shooting in particular for the moment, the call, it, I believe it was 9.56 p.m. that the violence began and calls started coming in just four minutes later to Toronto Police. The entire incident spanned only a couple of blocks and it lasted 10 minutes. So for something so violent to happen in that short period of time, you, you, you can really picture yourself being there grabbing that ice cream or whatnot and just enjoying that summer night and it forever changing. 
Absolutely. I just got chills as you were describing that timeline because it, it is something so sinister to happen so quickly. It's it's overwhelming. And, and I think that un, like it, we can, as I said, you know, we can put ourselves in that situation because we have all gone out uh, to do something so, so normal to go for ice cream, to go out with friends. You know, I was, uh, you know, with friends this weekend out in the same sort of situations. And it's it's overwhelming and, and very emotional to think about that being taken away from people. And, and that was part of, I think, also the, the outpouring of grief was the two young, young girls who were lost in that attack, 18 years old, Reese Fallon, and then 10 year old Julian. Kosets as well, uh, just the senselessness of of what happened, and and yeah, it just would have broken so many hearts as we know it did. Mm-hmm. And the two that were killed, as you mentioned, there there was also thirteen people that were injured, mm-hmm. and I think you can also relate to how their lives have changed over this past year. Um, we chat a lot. Global News Toronto has chatted a lot with a woman named Danielle Kane. And she was a hero that night. And I will say a hero because she truly was. She heard the gunshots and she ran out and went to go help as many people as she could. Um, Now, she was struck herself by a bullet. It went through and struck her vertebrae. So she was left paralyzed after that incident. And her new life this entire year, she's been battling with that, trying to figure out how to live her new life in this wheelchair And not only the physical injuries, but I should also mention the mental health injuries. Mm -hmm. These people that have witnessed it, that that were injured themselves, their families, their loved ones, their friends, they all have to get by this and, you know, think about this incident that happened. Today is just one of those days that really brings it forward in their memory. And I think tonight with this community vigil and uh, sunset ceremony that's going to be taking place, I think it will help those family members and those loved ones because this is another community support that's going to happen uh, where people will come out and, and show their love for these people and this community. It's actually the second to take place. The first one happened yesterday. As many as two, 200 people showed up to that. So it'll be interesting to see the amount of support that's gathered tonight. Certainly. Yeah, no, it's and, and that is always something that has given me uh, a lot of hope and um, whether the, there's been an incident in, in London or elsewhere or in Toronto in this case, seeing people come together, uh, you know, in the times where we have seen examples of the worst humanity can deliver to our doorsteps, to see it juxtaposed with this type of support is reassuring that things will be okay, they will be forever changed, but we at our core are still people who, uh, you know, want to make sure that our community is 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 going to be okay. And, and that's from what you've described of of, of of the you know memorials that are out, uh, that is it is a comfort to to know that those things are there. It's a visual representation that we're not alone. And I actually think that this does show who Toronto is. It's not the violence that people are remembering; it's the outpouring of support afterwards that shows what this city is all about. Absolutely. Well, Brianna, thank you for joining us on the line to talk about this and all the excellent work that you're doing there in Toronto. I should also mention that Brianna used to be a uh, 980 CFPL (laughs) intern with us. Excellent uh, intern when she was here, and she has just carried on the tradition of excellence as she uh, continues working with Global and uh, 640 in Toronto. Thank you for joining us on the line today. That's very sweet of you, and it was a pleasure to chat again. Thanks so much, Jess. You take care. And uh, yeah, it's it's been one of those... um, one of those stories that, you know, just sticks with you. And uh, as I mentioned before, it was a tough few months in Toronto last year when you had the van attack, followed by the Danforth shooting. 
it was a lot, a lot for that city to emotionally process um, and the losses as well. A lot of people left um, looking for answers as to how this could happen. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that the community finds some healing and a sense of not closure, because as we said, it, it's impossible really to have closure over over what happened because of the senselessness and the hurt that was caused. But I hope that there is a measure of comfort from it. We have someone on the line who wants to chat with us briefly. We have uh, like a minute or so. And that person is Marilyn. Marilyn, thank you so much for calling. How are you? Well, not too bad. Thank you. <laughs> it's a little nicer day today. It is. <laughs> but I feel so badly for those two mothers and the family, the mm-hmm. fathers too, that lost those beautiful girls, that darling young girl. And the one that was going through for a nurse, her mother, I watched her last night, her mother last night Mm -hmm. being interviewed, and she just looked heartbroken, poor soul. And, you know, people need people, lots of people, during a sad time like this. Now, I can't go to Toronto and console them, but Mm -hmm. I pray for them. And uh, I've got three daughters myself, Mm -hmm. and my baby was 50, turned 50, Last Monday, she was born the day, I think the day before the men left for the moon. Mm -hmm. And I took them, she and her boyfriend out uh, to Earl's for supper, and we had a sumptuous meal. But I I couldn't handle it. I don't think I could handle it. I think I'd have a, I'd collapse and die. Mm. I couldn't handle losing any of my children. I don't know how people do it, I guess prayer, and God brings them through. God can do anything for anybody, and his strength will bring these poor women through, because I felt so sorry for that mother last night. Both those girls had lots of promise, Mm -hmm. and for some... I don't know what to call him. Yeah, a we, madman. It's best I, to, to you know, just as as you said, Marilyn. We we send our our thoughts and our and our you know best wishes to those families and 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 hopes for healing. I think you're you you've hit it right there specifically, perfectly, Marilyn. Well, um, people need people, and I think Barbara Streisand had a song about that, a hit about yes. people needing people, and we really do. Mm-hmm. I've got lots of friends, and I love you and, and Mike and Craig. You. You've become part of my family. Well, you know what? We we feel like you, Marilyn, are part of our, our 980 CFPL family as well. It's uh, always lovely to hear from you, and, and we're always happy Will to you? chat with you. You take care, dear. You're a lovely, lovely person, and oh, keep thank that you. lovely personality. Well, thank you, Marilyn, and it, you are lovely as well for always being so kind and and for listening so so devotedly we 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 very much appreciate it and i'll i'll let you go now but thank you well, so thank much thank you so much dear and have a great one a cool you too one. yes thank you you as well stay yeah, comfortable bye-bye. bye-bye we need to take a quick break when we come back we'll stay on the theme of protecting our community, if you will, and trying to move forward with healing. We're going to talk with Megan Walker, Executive Director of the London Abused Women's Centre, about this ad, this uh, fake ad that was posted online about hiring uh, for a local restaurant. Not true. And uh, we're going to find out what that, what the kind of implications are of that. Coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. 
I got a call from some company called Numeris. Probably another survey. Wait, you need to take that call. You love radio and TV, right? Yeah, so? Yeah, so? Wouldn't you like to have a say in how to shape it? Numeris are the ones that gather that information. Really? Yeah, Numeris. Take the call. All right, I will. Have your say. Brought to you by Radio Connects. Learn more at numeris.ca and be a part of all the great stuff you listen to and watch. Welcome back to the program. It is your Monday afternoon edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. It's a very nice day outside by the looks of it. Much less uncomfortable than it was over the weekend. Super hot conditions. We're going to talk about more uh, regarding the, I guess, heat and the impact that it had on us uh, in a little bit. But first... Uh, for those of you who saw this story, Global Global is working on it, Global News, and uh, it's it's really disturbing. It's creepy. Uh, there was a fake ad that was posted purporting to be from the Black Trumpet, which is a fantastic local restaurant, um, saying that they were hiring staff. Well, the restaurant started getting all these calls from people. Being like, oh, we're interested in in your your ad for hiring staff. And the the restaurant said, we're not hiring anybody. They did not put out this ad. So someone out there is being real shady, posting a fake ad uh, online. And it's obviously bringing up some concerns. And one person who quite rightly has seen this as a big red flag is Megan Walker. She's the executive director of the London Abused Women's Center. And she thinks that there's a potential here that this ad could have been related to human trafficking and recruiting people into that. And she joins me live on the line now uh, to talk about this. Um, yeah. And just about the implications this ad could have. Megan, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk with me this afternoon about this story, which is, uh, you know, really disturbing. It's my pleasure, and I'm really happy to uh, have you raise awareness about the issue. Now, this kind of broke, um, I would say, like late last week, and over the weekend we started to learn more about it, and our newsroom has been in touch with uh, someone who was contacted through the ad, and it's, I mean, it's just super creepy that this, who would think to do this sort of thing, a fake ad for a restaurant for hiring purposes, and then you start even thinking, well, what is the end goal with this ad? And and it raised uh, red flags for you and certainly set off some alarm bells, didn't it? Well, it's interesting because last week the police issued uh, an alert uh, about two individuals, a man and a woman, who had been charged uh, for setting up a fake ad and having those women then were uh, turned out into the sex trade. And on the heels of that, the Black Trumpet restaurant also became aware that somebody had put an ad out for them, and they were having women calling their office. Uh, calling the Black Trumpet, asking around the job opportunity. Now, I've got to give a big shout-out to the uh, Black Trumpet because we say all the time, if you suspect or have a hunch something's going on, please call the police. It's not your job to be the investigator, but you need to report it so the issue can be investigated, and that's exactly what the Black Trumpet did. They also um, issued on Facebook an alert saying, we are not running any ads right now. And if you, um, you know, are responding to job ads, don't ever go outside of the building or the office. You know, don't meet in random locations. So while in this case we can't confirm whether it was traffickers or not, 
Um, we are really excited at the London Abused Women's Centre to know that the Black Trumpet picked the story up and went to the police, which is a sign that there is increased awareness about the issue of trafficking in our community. And I can tell you, based on my experiences, Jeff, that um, traffickers will utilize every tactic in the book if they think they will be successful at uh, recruiting a young girl into the into the game. So this is uh, one of the tactics, and it's a tactic I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of, where traffickers will be advertising for make money quick and hundreds of dollars a day. Um, we've got lots of jobs available, and I think we need to really um, uh, recognize that's happening so that girls can really be alerted to those issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things that um, it's it's sinister to think about and no one likes to think about it. And it, it is, it's it's one of those things that while the awareness is it's fantastic, like you said, it's great that people are starting to pick up on this stuff. It is so sad that it is so prevalent. And that's something that we've learned through locks work, uh, through information that's been put out through um, London police and different agencies about just how big of a problem this is, especially in our corridor along the 401 this is like it's insane how much this is actually happening right under our noses and we don't know about it yes you're absolutely right and the other thing that's happening right under our noses is that university and college kids are being picked up really frequently either at their universities or colleges or at bars in downtown london again this is why it's so important that we raise awareness and report to police and You know, we are in a situation now where our provincial government has cut the amount of um, grants kids can get when they're going into schools, post-secondary universities and uh, colleges, which means they are going to have to rely more and more on making money on their own to make it work because the amount of loans they're going to have to pay off will be due, uh, start payments will be due immediately upon graduation. And so that's a big issue for a lot of kids. And I think traffickers are picking up on that and using that as a way to um, lure these young girls um, by saying, look, you can go to university debt-free. Well, you know, this is all you have to do. And they come in and then they realize that what they actually have to do in some cases is turn 15 or 20 tricks a day. You know, can you imagine a young kid, 17 years old, first time away from a home or university who ends up um, you know, having 15 to 20 men purchase sexual services from her um, to fulfill his pe- porn and fetish-fueled fantasies. I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous. And what I say to people all the time is, you know, this this is happening to our children. You know, it doesn't matter if it's my kid or yours. We're all collectively as a community responsible for raising our children. And This is just absolutely outrageous what's going on in this community and other communities across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's, it is heartbreaking to know that this is happening. And uh, yeah, like I said, I have mixed emotions about this story, because on the one hand, I'm so pleased that this suspicious activity was uh, like flagged and brought to the proper authorities. But it makes me really sad that it's out there in the first place. Um, Megan, if if people are, you know, if they are online, and they see something weird, like we we hear stories about strange, uh, you know, arrangements posted for roommates, 
rates and things like that. We've, we've had some discussions about that in the newsroom, about weird postings for rentals and uh, stuff like that. If someone sees something strange, what should they be doing? What are some of the, first of all, red flags to look for in a suspicious posting? And then what do they do about it? Well, I think, first of all, we need to recognize that um, there are not any students that really would qualify um, before they've even walked their first day into the university or college for a job that pays hundreds of dollars a day. So that's a red flag. And so if, if any girls or young women are seeing ads like that and they're specifically targeting girls and young women, uh, that is likely a trafficker. And in that case, again, I encourage them to go to the police and not respond to the ads. If they see an ad uh, online or, or elsewhere that looks appealing to them and has some, um, you know, the skills, the, the woman or girl has some of the skills they're looking for, and it's a legitimate organization with a legitimate interview process in an office or in a restaurant, I would encourage them to pursue that. But if the job description um, is a little off or if they're requesting an interview in an, a sort of outside hotel room or anything like that, um, no, you, you don't go. That's another, you know, the red, uh, you know, the red flags go off. Um, in the same way as if somebody's advertising for models, um, you know, please, unless it's a registered modeling agent, don't go. These are all fronts for, generally fronts for traffickers to use for, for the sex trade. And I think it's really important for the public to understand um, that this is actually happening. Like, we are not exaggerating. If anything, we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg of what's actually happening. So people need to be aware. And I always tell students, if you're going to look in a part at an apartment, go with somebody you know. Don't go alone. Because, you know, it's very unsafe anyways for girls to go and look at apartments on their own um, because they don't know who's going to be greeting them at the other end. But it's particularly uh, unsafe if those girls are going where it's, um, you know, a trafficker involved. So just go with somebody, you know, make sure you're never alone. Absolutely. Safety in numbers is a, is a real thing. Uh, well, Megan, thank you so much for your time today in talking about this. And uh, we'll, we'll be watching this closely to see if there are any other developments from London Police. And, and again, thank you for your insight and for sharing uh, some of those things that we should be on the lookout for and how we can respond to them. And just thank you because, um, you know, Global ran the ad, um, the pictures of the two individuals that police posted when they said that they uh, had arrested two individuals on trafficking-related charges. And when those pictures are, are put up for other girls to see, if they also have been trafficked, they feel more comfortable in coming forward. So the media has a major role to play as well, and so we appreciate that you did that. Well, thank you again, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you in the future about uh, other issues and, and finding ways forward to help the community. You're awesome. Thanks, Jess. And now to news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Welcome back to the program. I am indeed Jess Brady, filling in for the lovely Mike Stubbs, who is on vacation this week. Very well deserved. So before the break... I was talking about how we were going to discuss how hot it was <laughs> over the weekend. Oof. Pretty sure we broke some records in terms of the humidity level, how that felt. 
It was sweltering. I was away over the weekend at a bachelorette uh, for a friend who's getting married in three weeks' time. And we were up in Collingwood, actually. But it was funny, as we as I was driving with my best friend Amanda uh, up to uh, Blue Mountain, we were in the car and we started getting all the alerts about the tornado warnings that were in effect for London. And there was a storm on our drive. We were outside of the immediate area by that time of London. But we, we were hit by a storm while we were on the 401. And it was pretty wild. And it was super hot even when we got to Collingwood. And the whole weekend was just nuts. And we knew that there were air conditioners running the entire time, no matter where you were. At the condo that we stayed in, the AC was running. Thank God that worked well. And we didn't run into a problem with that. Uh, you know, I know that everyone I talked to, that was the topic of conversation was how hot it was and uh, just being very thankful that the AC was working. So you can imagine how much electricity <laughs> was used over the course of the weekend and joining us on the line to talk about that and get an idea of just how much was in fact used is Terry Young. He is uh, a vice president with the Ontario Independent Electricity System Operator. Terry, thanks so much for taking some time this afternoon to chat with me. No problem. Glad to be here. Now, this would have been a very busy uh, weekend for you guys over at the IESO, keeping track of the grid and everything that's been going on because it was just sweltering out. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the consumption trends that you guys saw uh, in and around our London area, southwestern Ontario. What did you see? Well, it was one of our hottest times of the year, and not surprising, it was one of the highest demands for electricity that we saw. In fact, on Friday and Saturday, uh, we measure this in, in megawatts, and we measure what's the peak. Is So over an hour, what that electricity consumption is over that hour. And Friday and Saturday, uh, it was the second and third highest uh, demands for the year. So you're certainly seeing an impact of the hot, humid weather. Um, you know, the air conditioning is, is was certainly going forward blast. At least it was in my house and I think many other houses. And, and when you do see the air conditioning you know, running as it was, it, it can account for about a third of, of electricity use. So uh, not surprising. That's why we saw the high demands for electricity over the last few days. It's wild. I knew that it was going to be intense. I think everyone was anticipating it. We're all a little afraid to see our uh, electricity bills when they come in next. Uh, What, I guess, did you see a bit of a a drop-off? When did you start noticing things uh, kind of calming down? Well, so what what typically happens is is the longer the heat wave uh, lasts, you know, your buildings get hotter and hotter, and it takes a long time for, or a lot longer, if you will, to cool the buildings. And so we saw this continue to climb. And on Friday, we were expecting a uh, a peak demand. In fact, uh, we were looking at the highest of the year. And you'll recall on Friday, the thunderstorms rolled in uh, mid-afternoon or early afternoon, and the demand for electricity then actually dropped by about 5%. It's kind of the, the impact that you see on the weather um, with that with that those clouds with that rain um, it, the demand dropped it then started to climb back up again and we saw it climb up again on Saturday until Saturday night of course when when the thunderstorms came in again and uh, uh, we saw the demand now starting to come back and this week it looks relatively normal um, you know the temperatures are, are are lower than what they were um, and we're not seeing the humidity of a but by the end of the week, we're looking to see demand for electricity climb again as that as that weather climbs. 
No doubt. It's kind of cool that you can track things in, in, in sort of real time and you, and you see uh, the trends as they're happening. Does it ever, I guess, make you feel a little bit nervous when you're, when you're seeing these levels climb and climb and climb? Because obviously there's, there's the health of the grid and, and concerns over being able to deliver this amount of electricity. You know, certainly we are watching the weather very, very carefully, and so we're preparing for it. You know, if we need to, we can, uh, you know, schedule, uh, make changes and schedule, making sure that there is enough generation that's that's available to meet that those, dem- those demands. Pardon me. Um, you can also make sure that you know, if work can be put off, it would be put off. So, but but we do have enough supply in Ontario. It's uh, you know, it wasn't so long ago that in times like this, we'd be counting on our neighbors to uh, 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 help us out, and we would be importing power from them. But right now, we do have enough power to meet our own needs. And so uh, we're certainly a lot better off than we were, say, a, a decade or so ago. Certainly, yeah, because uh, the word uh, brownouts, uh, uh, you know, that certainly comes to mind. I think, oh gosh, it's it's a number of years ago now, but it was uh, widespread along a, a large swath of uh, the eastern coast and here in Ontario when we had a, a massive outage in the summer. Uh, and you just saw reports coming in from all over of, 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 of people in major cities and, and the lights are out and everyone's gathering around. It was It's an eerie feeling when you see those types of things. It can be, but but as I said, Ontario, we've got a lot more supply than we did, and so we're we're better able to meet those demands than we were. What we don't always are able to prevent, though, is is when you do have storms, as you did on uh, Saturday night, uh, particularly in the London area, where you you know have uh, uh, trees come down and and take out lines, and and so typically that's what would happen if you see their power outage uh, now during a storm. Um, it's not that there isn't enough electricity, because there is. Um, it's just that the the weather's creating havoc and and uh, and it can, as I said trees can land on lines and then the crews have to get out and 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 try and repair those. Absolutely, yeah. Those environmental factors can certainly throw a wrench into things, uh, whether it's it's heating things up <laughs> and causing demand or uh, taking things right down off the grid when there are those uh, incidents that take place. But yeah, it, it is absolutely reassuring uh, to hear you say, Terry, that uh, you know the province is in pretty good shape when it comes to our our having our bases covered with uh, electricity supply. So moving forward, uh, you know we don't really anticipate any big big problems, but uh, it, that is good to hear. Yeah, no, we do have a, a a pretty robust system, and we do have a, enough power available to uh, uh, to meet the demands that we're expecting this summer. Um, that said, you know, when you do turn on your air conditioning, it does uh, uh, you do see the impact of that when your bill arrives. So anything you can do, uh, whether it's you know turning down the temperature a bit, uh, whether it's uh, you know trying to cool your house with fans, whether it's keeping your 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 blinds closed, uh, anything you can do to keep the cool air in will certainly help and uh, it'll help reduce your electricity use and of course help reduce your your electricity costs. Absolutely. Now, out of curiosity, Terry, you mentioned that Friday and, and Saturday were the second and third, uh, I guess, um, highest demand days so far this year. What, out of curiosity, what was the first? The first one was actually a couple of weeks ago on, on July 5th. It was uh, slightly higher. They're all within the range of a couple hundred megawatts. But incidentally, when you look at the demand for electricity, as I mentioned, we, men- we measure these in megawatts. And, the, and what we saw on uh, Saturday uh, was just under 22,000 megawatts. It's a, it's a far cry from what we had, say, a, a decade ago, uh, where we were up over 26, 27,000 megawatts. So uh, we 
certainly seeing a more efficient, if you will, use of electricity. People are uh, conserving. They're using electricity, uh, you know, more wisely than they had. And uh, so, again, it leaves our system, uh, you know, much, a, much better able to uh, handle heat waves like we, we saw over the weekend. It's amazing to see how trends change over time. And as you said, you know, more efficient use, more efficient equipment that's being used in our homes and, and elsewhere. It's neat to see how these trends develop and, and the changes that are made in the industry as, as we move along. Terry, it's, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about this. And thanks for giving us some time today to, to share some insight and, and get an idea of just how much power we were zapping from the system to keep cool over the weekend. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you as well. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to chat with Tim Fraser from Home County about how the heat impacted their operations this weekend. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. When we left off, we were talking about consumption of energy over the weekend, given all that hot, hot heat that hit us. It was very, very warm indeed. So we've talked about impact on our bottom lines when it comes to uh, our consumption and, you know, how pricey that's going to be later on in the month when we get that bill. Uh, But in terms of other types of impacts, we had home county music and art festival going over the weekend in victoria park so you can only imagine what that would have been like for people who went down to uh, the park to check it out all the cool stuff that was happening there also all the vendors all the performers it was smoking hot so we wanted to check in uh, with the artistic director of home county that's tim fraser to first of all find out how things went in terms of the festival how it ran how how it was going it was his first uh first festival at the helm of it uh so that was really exciting. And also to find out how this weather impacted the festival. And uh, Tim joins me on the line now. Tim, thanks so much for taking some time out of your afternoon to chat with us about how the weekend went. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to chat with you about uh, recapping an amazing weekend. Well, you know what? It always is an amazing time with Home County. There's always so much going on. And I, I know that uh, we, we did a chat with you last week in the lead up to the festival, and it sounded mm-hmm. like there was a lot happening. So tell me, how did things go? You know, overall, things went incredibly well. Um, we beat the heat. <laughs> we had some record-setting temperatures, as everybody in town knows, Friday and Saturday. Uh, we had a little bit of a rough patch on Saturday night, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yesterday, the, the closing date of the festival was absolutely perfect. We barely saw a cloud in the sky. The crowds that we had out yesterday were amazing. The support from London uh, coming out to, to the festival this weekend was absolutely incredible. And the closing down last night on the main stage was was a perfect end to uh, an overall uh, pretty amazing festival um, for, for me and for hopefully for the rest of London as well. You know what? Let's dive into uh, the weather aspect of this. As you mentioned first, we had that record-breaking heat in in a couple of cases. Uh, I was actually out of town over the weekend, but I will tell you that it was just as hot uh, where I was up in, in Collingwood. It felt like it anyway. Just crazy. It felt like you were breathing in a wall of moisture on the Friday. Uh, how was yeah. it? What did you? Th- how did people, I guess, handle it as they were out uh, at the park on the Friday there? Uh, you know, I think everybody stuck to the shade as much as they could. The The city does provide refillable stations for water bottles as well. So, you know, everybody was 
uh, definitely using that to, to, to the full ability. Um, you know, we also have our craft beer garden so people could get a nice cool drink there. And all of our food vendors were supplying uh, cold drinks. I think the ice cream vendors that had an amazing weekend sales wise, uh, cause I think everybody was lined up for them. But, uh, you know, I think for, for how people are dealing with it, you know, I, I personally, I think I sweat through about three shirts on Friday and <laughs> another three on Saturday. So, uh, but you know, everybody, uh, still came out and had a great time. Um, and then we all got to experience a, a pretty, you know, um, pretty fun uh, storm on Saturday night <laughs> yeah. together. But everybody was safe, which is the most important part. So, yeah. That was my very next question was that, you know, all of the alerts came out. We had a tornado warning. It was uh, a little bit scary there for a while. I was in contact with family and friends back here in the city while uh, while I was away. And, uh, yeah, there was certainly and, like pictures that were rolling in on social media. Mm-hmm. That is, I've been in the park for other events when a bad storm has rolled in, and it can be a little bit frightening. Tell us a little bit about, like, what the procedure is then, like how things rolled out on the Saturday night when you were dealing with that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's obviously one of the last things as an event organizer wants to have happen when you're, when you're doing something, but it is something that we all have to prepare for because when you are at the mercy of the elements, this, this sort of thing can happen. So we do have an emergency preparedness plan that everybody was on board with. We do have, you know, a, a plan in place to make sure that the right decisions are being made for public safety. And, uh, you know, it came to time for, for Delhi to Dublin to take the stage. And, you know, I was emceeing for the night, and I did make an announcement that we were tracking a weather system that was coming in. Um, you know, if uh, if the storm did get really bad, we were going to have to close the show down, unfortunately, and to ask people to take shelter. And <clears throat> we were going to continue with the show. And right as we were about to, to introduce Delhi to Dublin, you could see the storm kind of rolling in over the band shell over top of us. And uh, so we just, we cut the power and dropped the drape lines. And uh, I have to say a, a huge kudos to our sound and light company, LAV Solutions of London. They were incredibly professional and quick and made sure that everything got down safely and that people were clear of any uh, possible hazards. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we, we kind of let it go for a little bit to see, but you know, as the storm kind of continued to go, there was just a lot of lightning and a lot of high winds and, uh, when when there's storms like that are so unpredictable, it's just it, it's it was a very easy call. It was a difficult decision, but it's a very easy call for us to make to just cancel the concert because we you can't risk uh, anybody getting injured or anything like that. So public safety obviously takes number one for, is the number one thing that we are looking out for as event organizers. Um, so as difficult as the decision as it was, and as upsetting for everybody, including myself, who you know has spent a year working on this show. Uh, it, it was the right call to make. And, uh, you know, hopefully everybody understood um, the reason behind it. But, uh, you know, it's disappointing. But uh, I think it was handled professionally and well. And at the end of the day, no injuries, no damage to anything. And that's the most important part. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, you can't uh, you can't mess around with public safety. And uh, absolutely, it would have been, you know, disappointing for in that moment. But certainly no one I don't think would have blamed you, uh, given no. the, the images that they were seeing right there in person and, and <laughs> seeing it. So, yeah, a bit of a, a tough one on Saturday night. But as you said before, things yesterday were really great. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a nice way to cap things off, wasn't it? Um, tell me, how many people do you have a, a, a popular, not population, an attendance <laughs> estimate? should say on on the weekend how many people came through uh i don't have like an exact one right now i know because of the heat and the tornado warning on friday um you know our our numbers were a little bit lighter than we would have liked to see on friday and saturday yesterday though the park was absolutely packed um 
the I know for a number of the workshop stages on you know throughout the park, I did kind of a rough calculation and saw upwards of eight to nine hundred people in front of those side stages, which is an incredible number um, for for our workshop stages. So I, I unfortunately I don't have like a, a rough estimate on the total attendance for the park, but um, for the weekend I know it's a little bit lighter than than in previous years. But again, when when you're dealing with unpredictable weather weather systems coming in, it's completely understandable. And, uh, you know, but we still all had a great time and everyone who came out really enjoyed the festival this year. Absolutely. And when we chatted with you last week about, uh, you know, the lead up to the festival, you made mention that uh, the, 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 I guess the lineup was, was moving in some new directions, that you had different groups uh, from different genres of music, uh, kind of expanding the experience. Uh, how did the crowd seem to enjoy that? I think overall it's been pretty positive feedback all around. I know that um, you know our headliner on Friday night, Colin Response, had a full brass section, which is something that you know isn't always seen at Home County. But uh, the general vibe around and response that I've been hearing from people is that they really enjoyed it. And um, you know, the, even if you if you look at it from a folk standpoint, as this is traditionally a folk festival, that folk umbrella encompasses so many different genres of music that. Um, that I think, you know, you can, you can kind of get away with expanding things and still have it stay traditional to the, to the roots of the festival. Uh, Sunday night lineup was a, a very traditional, you know, folk singer-songwriter roots uh, lineup. Um, but overall, you know, the, a lot of the different acts that, we, that I kind of test-piloted this year seemed to have been getting rave reviews um, from, from London. And it was really great to see people kind of embrace a slightly new direction and a little bit of a push away from from what they've known, but also being able to keep the keep the traditional, uh, you know, roots of the folk festival there in place. Fantastic. The best of old and new, uh, expanding our horizons and, and taking in some great stuff, as always, at Home County. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. We'll let you get back to the park and the, and the cleanup that's going on there. Stay cool out there. Thankfully, it's not as hot as over the weekend. Yeah, you know, the, that's the one bonus about having that big storm blow through is that it, so it lifted the humidity and uh, working away in the park today is much easier than it was setting up on Friday. So <laughs> thank you so much for uh, letting me come on, Jess. It's been uh, a real pleasure talking with you. Same to you and all the best. And we look forward to hearing what you have in store for next year. Not to put too much pressure on it. You just got through this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's my first year. I guess I really need to kind of follow it up strong next year. And that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. I'm going to start planning next year's tomorrow so everybody can look forward to that. Fantastic. Well, Tim, thank you again and congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, we need to go to news with Jacqueline LaBelle. When we come back, we're talking about an interesting, different type of book drive. Collecting books for EMDC. That's coming up after the break, right on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the Monday afternoon edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. Busy show so far. We've talked about the heat. We've talked about some really creepy online ads uh, that have been fictitious. They're fake news, those ads. I don't like saying fake news because it's, as I adjust my microphone and you hear weird noises from coming from the studio. Um, but yeah, I don't like usually using that phrase usually. But in this case, I'll make an exception because it's super creepy and those ads are just totally bogus. So we talked about that. We talked about the heat and our electricity consumption and uh, readings of our electricity. 
And now we're going to talk about readings of a different kind. Joining me live and in studio is Miriam Hamu. And she is a voice that is very well known on 980 CFPL airwaves here. And she's often a guest on the roundtable with Craig in the mornings. But she's here with me in studio as well with her daughter, her lovely daughter who's here. Uh, We're talking about this new initiative that Miriam is working on and it's book donations for perhaps a place that many people wouldn't think about book donations for, which is the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. Miriam, thanks so much for joining me, first of all. Oh, you're welcome. This Anytime. Is, <laughs> it's a pleasure uh, chatting with you. We don't get a lot of chance to, no. to chit-chat. Usually Craig monopolizes that, but I mean, for good reason, <laughs> for good reason. Yeah. Um, but tell me a little bit about, first of all, how this came uh, to be, this campaign, because you do work with the London Public Library right. and the board. Um, right. So tell me, uh, first of all, how that came to be, this, so, this so the thing is, is you know, I've been seeing a lot in the news about the EMDC and I figured, OK, well, how can I help them? Because I, you know, I feel really badly about all of the stuff that's been going on there, like with the deaths and that they're over, they're overcrowded. And, um, you know, it's it's supposed to be a temporary location, but now it's actually like a full time location. Um, and the thing that I know best more than anything else is libraries and books and whatnot. That's kind of my thing. It's I'm a librarian. Um, I've worked, I'm on the chair of the London Public Library and I do work with the Ontario Library Association. Um, so I called them up and I said, so how, what is it that you do um, for resources for the inmates? And um, what they said was, well, we just had somebody retire, our librarian that was there retired and that they have no more resources because their funding had run out to to, you know, for purchasing materials for the library. So um, a lot of times there there just isn't enough there for everybody to read. So then I said, well, can I start a book donation um, and collect some resources and materials? And they said, absolutely, that would help us so much. I said, well, what do you guys, what would you like? And so she ran down a list of authors. Um, that's all um, I can I can send that, like just normal stuff, like, you know, the the Game of Thrones trilogy, mm-hmm. um, James Patterson, Baldici, like a bunch of the the popular stuff right um and so she sent that to me and then I sent it out to my um, neighborhood group and it was picked up by media and now it's like it's everywhere and I've had um requests from um you know um Calgary from Montreal people saying can I send books to you and I'm like well I think I'd rather just keep it local for now because we've had a lot of um uptake yeah, I yeah. was going to say, like, once you once, as you said, like the word gets out, yep. it start, sort of starts to snowball. It does. Yeah. And like how many books have you if you have a rough number? Um, how many I don't know books, but I know that I have probably around 20 boxes full of books right now at home. And I know there's more coming. Um, so I'm 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 getting a lot. Um, I've also had phone calls from some bookstores in London. Um, I think it's called Bibliotech, the one across from um, Oxford, uh, the one across from the Victoria Park there. They said, come and get some books from us. I've um, talked to Michelle Quinton from The Goodwill, who said who said to me, like, uh, we will donate whatever they need as well, um, as well as um, others that, are, you know, other community partners and members that are that are willing to donate. So um, the word's out. Yeah, I, that's yeah. no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, out. sorry, the word's out. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean that one. Never apologize yeah. for a pun with yeah. me because yeah. I love them. And anytime I can work one in, I'm going to do it. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> and also the public library has also said, like uh, the London Public Library has said that they want to donate some of their materials as well. So, I mean, it's an everything, you know, everybody yeah. wants to get involved. 
That is fantastic. I, it's one of those stories where uh, so often when you hear the letters EMDC, yeah. you're like, uh-oh, you're like yeah. bracing. You're bracing for something negative. And in this case, it is the exact opposite. And it's yeah. such a lovely breath of fresh air to hear about something good happening yeah. at that location and, and, you know, bringing in some resources and something that will hopefully make people, uh, I don't know, just a little bit make that time a little bit lighter, which can be so dark and heavy to be there. It is. And a lot of times um, the people that are in there might may have mental health issues, Mm -hmm. um, addiction issues. A lot of times that some people are just being held um, without bail um, and they're not convicted of anything. So it's just a waiting time. So why not give them something to keep them busy? Um, Resources, you know, books, board games, even something to keep them busy and occupied while they're in there. Yeah, because so often, like, you know, people obviously have very differing opinions on the criminal justice system. Sure. And, and like, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Sure. But I think that we should all be able to hopefully be able to agree that no matter, you know, you, people are in there, but they still deserve uh, right. to be treated humanely. Exactly. And, and I think that says more about us yeah. than about them and how we treat um, our, our people that are that have been detained. So for me, I just think, well, you know what, I would if, if something happens happened to one of my children and they were detained in, you know, EMDC overnight or for a week or whatever. I'd like them to have resources or like them to be treated well, at least. We don't know. Some people are in there innocently. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's it's not a bad thing. And also, you know, the idea that while someone is in there, um, reading, I'm, I'm a massive fan of it. When I was younger, it was always a really big part of my life. It's an escape. It is. Yeah. It is an escape. And it's Happy also, time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it's also a way to, you know, improve yourself. And Absolutely. To expand your mind. Absolutely. And yeah. Like not to, I, I in no way mean to sound condescending or what have you. Because no. I'm sure there are lots of people in there who do love to read already. Yeah. But this is a way for people to, you know, have that escape, but also to broaden their horizons. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it, again, it's, um, you know, what, what, however you want to see the justice system, some people see it as a means to rehabilitate people as well. And this is a type of rehabilitation, you know, um, one of the, there's a new type of readers advisory, and it's all about, um, reading uh, like therapy reading and providing books for people that help them get through their situations through reading and reading about them so um this is kind of a new thing that we're exploring in the librarian community is like it's like reading therapy it's called so um so this could certainly go down that road um if their therapists choose to do that but we just want to make sure that the resources are there for them yeah absolutely i think that's fantastic now as you mentioned uh you're kind of looking for the the, the hit makers if you right. will right so absolutely like, like the top sort of more popular genres and and are there any genres if people are wanting to uh, donate that people they should stay away from or right. you know um, like or which ones should they be more actively uh, donating anything really to be honest with you the only thing that I've been um, advised not to donate were westerns and romance novels and I think it's because they have too many of those right now and they're not oh. really wanted to, so it's it's one of those um, and it's, it has nothing to do with those are banned or anything like that no it's just that they have enough um (laughs) Um, but if you have textbooks even because I was I was given um I was given information that they're also looking for textbooks so 
you know, it's another good way for people to rehabilitate themselves. They want to learn about a topic while they're in there. That's fine. That's good. That's great. It might give them, you know, a lot of these people are going to be released into the into the population, into the general population after two years, less a day or mm-hmm. however yep. long they're going to be in there. So why yep. not give them, you're right, it's less a day. Yeah. So why not give <laughs> them, why not give them um, resources in order to get them where they need to be when they get out? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a, a fantastic idea. And uh, I, I would imagine that, uh, you know, because EMDC and and um, it's correctional institutions in general, like they don't have good reputations. Right. No. And that is that is obviously an, an unfortunate reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's with good reason that they have those bad reputations because of, you know, just the nature of of the facility and, and right. what what they are and, and uh, what they're meant to do and that sort of thing. But it's nice to know that we do have initiatives like this, that there are some in place already, but we can augment it. Yeah. Um, now, if anybody is interested in donating, they've right. got the information about what they should be kind of looking at how do they get these books to you and so i'm onward. just collecting them at my home you can you can certainly email me at mhamou at gmail.com um that's how i'm taking things or you can find me on facebook and just private message me as well or on twitter Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for coming in to talk about this today. And uh, again, if, if people are interested, you just heard the email. You can also call us in the newsroom. We'll give you that that detail uh, and uh, get you connected with Miriam so you can pass along your books. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime. And good luck with the rest of it. And I, I hope you. you get like 20 more boxes but yep. at an appropriate rate so you're not yes. swamped. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Fantastic. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Dr. Uh, Myron, Dr. Daniel Myron. He's a researcher in uh, the Ottawa area about a new study talking about alcohol-related issues, and there's a growing number of women and young people who are searching out assistance for that in ERs and emergency emergency departments. We're going to talk about that coming up on 980CFPL. Welcome back to the program. I am indeed Jess Brady. And I am indeed your guest host this week on London Live on 980 CFPL. And it's a nice start to the week. It's much less muggy than it was previously. It was pretty nuts over the weekend. We were breaking some heat records. And as we heard from Terry Young from uh, the Ontario uh, agency that monitors our power grids and manages them. Yeah, it was it, there was some some pretty high demand that came in over the weekend. And on Friday specifically, I think was the worst in in the year. It was our second and third highest peak times for um, for our uh, for our our use, our energy consumption, if you will. Um, it's it's been nuts in terms of in terms of that, and also it was a big weekend for parties in general and having a great time. Um, I was up myself up at uh, Blue Mountain, and I was there on a bachelorette party. And of course, bachelorettes come along with drinking and, uh, you know, you're you're having a good time. We were obviously very responsible. We're, you know, ladies in our uh, early 30s slash late 20s. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not not young pups anymore, not <laughs> those spring chickens. Uh, but certainly we're, you know, very um, we try to be very responsible. But there is an interesting study that's come up and it's from researchers in Ottawa. And it's looking at the number of 
women and young people specifically, there is an increase, a marked increase in the number of people in those communities who are winding up in emergency rooms um, talking about alcohol-related issues. And I've been very lucky this afternoon to actually make contact with the lead author on this study, Dr. Daniel Myron, and he joins me on the line now to talk more about the results. And this was like a long-standing study. It took it took a number of years. And uh, the good doctor joins us on the line right now. Thank you so much for joining us today. I very much appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. So take us through, I guess, what was maybe the inspiration for this study? Because correct me if I'm wrong, it was over a decade of data that was looked at in this study. So we looked at 14 years of data, but it's actually something that we did over the span of a year. Uh, so the data, was, the data is always collected by uh, hospitals and emergency rooms across the province. Uh, and we looked at uh, visits that were caused by alcohol to emergency rooms between 2003 and 2016. Wow! Yeah, that's it's uh, it's it's amazing to see some of those stats, and um, you know, it, it's it's disheartening a little bit. But it, 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 at the same time, I, obviously, it's great for people to be going to get assistance that they need. But yeah, typically, it is it is the male population that we see see this happening more with. Yeah, and that, and that's I think one of the the striking things about our study is that uh, in 2003, uh, certainly men went to the emergency room uh, much more often than women uh, caused by alcohol, and that was true in 2016 as well. Uh, but over that 14-year time period, the gap between men and women really narrowed, uh, and that what we're seeing is that women are catching up to men. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure of how much the study looked at at this next question. And, and forgive me if, you, if, you've, if you've touched upon it already, but the reasons why this increase that we're seeing in, in women reaching out for this type of assistance, like having to go in if there's a, a, an emergency situation, why is it that women are becoming more, um, more, seeing more of them rather in the stats? So... The study wasn't set up to answer that question, and it's an important one. Uh, I think what's, what's key to keep in mind is that when we see increases as large as the ones that we observed in this study, and we're talking that, uh, you know, the number of, of women overall going to the emergency room more than doubled between uh, 2003 and 2016. Uh, the number of men going to the emergency department uh, also almost doubled. So I think we have to keep in mind that, that this is a problem that's also rapidly increasing in men. Uh, but when you look at, at the magnitude, the size of these increases, uh, it's almost certain that there's more than one thing going on, uh, that there's not a single answer. And unfortunately, that means that there's not going to be a single solution uh, to what's happening. So often with medical issues and societal ones, it is multifaceted, right? It, you can't really ever just blame one factor, as as you're saying. It it is, uh, you know, an issue that has a lot of a lot of different facets to it and contributing factors. Absolutely, uh, you know, I I think that there's uh, the the fact that these emergency department visits are increasing so much in women uh, is in some way the expected result of the fact that we know Canadian women are drinking more. Uh, and there's also data showing that uh, Canadians are drinking in heavier patterns or binge drinking more, uh, particularly women. Uh, and so it, it doesn't answer why people are drinking more, but it's certainly uh, the expected result.
Interesting. Well, I suppose that, uh, you know, it's the first the first part of, um, you know, tackling an issue is gathering that that data that you need to understand what exactly is going on first. And then you can kind of move forward from there, strategizing, you know, the medical community uh, and other resources, uh, you know, working together to kind of analyze it more and, and understand what's happening. Absolutely. And I and I think that uh, when we talk about solutions to problems like this, uh, I, I think that, you know, it, our solutions need to be in some sense uh, dealing with multiple, multiple different levels. So I think that what we're hoping is that the study uh, that's come out can prompt more of a conversation uh, kind of on a societal level about uh, our relationship with alcohol. Uh, the reality is, is that alcohol use is very common uh, in Canada. Around 80% of people drink. Uh, and for many people, they won't have harms from alcohol. But there is evidence that uh, the way we're consuming alcohol is becoming increasingly harmful. Uh, I, I think that the medical community also needs to be uh, doing more to, to screen patients for uh, unhealthy alcohol use uh, and have conversations with people, not just at kind of the end at the end stages when people have developed uh, serious harms like uh, liver disease or uh, an alcohol use disorder, uh, but earlier on when people are starting to have uh, patterns that they're drinking uh, is harming them. And, and I think that there's absolutely a role for governments to play here, uh, that there's a number of policies that governments at all levels can put into place, and I think we need to be to be rethinking and relooking at them. That's very interesting, and and to your point about uh, additional screening, or you know, at the at the medical practitioner level, uh, doctors, our family doctors, even. I mean, when you go for your your yearly physical or what have you, there's often that question uh, about substance usage. Uh, are you a drinker? How often do you drink? That sort of thing. So when when you mentioned screening, that immediately came to my mind um, because who? It, sometimes it's it's a little bit daunting when you sit down and you're asked that question. Well, how much do you drink on a weekly basis? If you had to average it out. Sometimes people probably don't realize that they are consuming as much as they are. Absolutely, and I and I'm a clinician. And when I see patients, uh, you know, a couple years ago, certainly the questions would have been, "Are you a, are you, you know, do you drink alcohol?" And then the and the person will say yes. And your next question might be, you know, "Are you a social drinker?" Uh, and if they say yes, you don't ask too many more questions. But I think I think that we have to, you know, understand that alcohol consumption. Uh, you know, there's there's different levels of it and there's different harms that come from it. And I think that we have to have more conversations about how much people are drinking uh, and the potential harms that, that come of it. Absolutely. You're so right. As with so many things uh, in life, nuance and uh, is, is just is critical in terms of delving into uh, the, the heart of a matter and finding out what's really going on with anyone uh, in their situation. So uh, you're bang on with that. And uh, Do- Dr. Myron, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, and in explaining this, I so greatly appreciate it. And it was an absolute pleasure talking with you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, we need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be chatting about a couple of things. One, social media and some new additions to it in London, the social media scene on Twitter, the Twitterverse and on Instagram. Uh, The canine unit with London Police. Yeah, they're online now with uh, their Twitter and Insta accounts. It's going to be really cool. That's coming up when we come back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We are into the last like 24 minutes of the show. This show has flown by. As Mondays go, 
when I fill in for Mike on London Live, it's always a blast. And uh, yeah, this day has like seriously just jetted by. It's amazing. Had some opportunities to chat with some really cool people about interesting topics that are, uh, you know, current and going on and matter to everybody. So that's always such a pleasure. It's a privilege, honestly, to be here. So I'm really glad when uh, I'm allowed to come back and, and keep chatting with all of you. So before the break, I told you that we were going to talk about this new, I guess, foray from the London Police Canine Unit into the social media universe. The unit is now on Twitter. And Instagram. Yes, the Twitterverse and on Insta. You can find them on Twitter at canine underscore London. And on Insta, their handle is London Police underscore canine. Yeah, it's really cool. You can see um, all of the dogs they've posted so far. You know, they give you some inside information about how the unit works, that sort of thing. It's neat. And last week, I had a chance to chat with one of the constables in the unit, and that's Constable Matt Haler. He is the handler for Kylo, who is one of the... uh, office officer canine officers I should say uh, with the unit and uh, he's he's working a different shift this week so he wasn't able to to chat in studio live but he did very graciously come in last week to chat with me ahead of time uh, and he brought Kylo with him so let's take a listen to the uh, chat with Constable Matt Haler and Kylo. Matt, so thank you so much for being here with us in studio. It is uh, really exciting to meet you and also to meet Kylo. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So London Police, they have a few Twitter accounts uh, and uh, Instagram account for the department. But now there is a new one, two new ones, I should say. One for Twitter, one for Instagram, uh, specifically for Canine Unit. That's that's correct. Yeah, we launched uh, Thursday of last week. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's been... Uh, been pretty, pretty popular so far. Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> I think on Instagram, some of the most popular posts are about dogs in general. And uh, police dogs certainly are just as exciting. And they're dogs with jobs, which is neat. That's correct. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm a little biased about uh, having the best position in the London Police uh, Service. But um, being able to work with the dogs and see what these dogs uh, are capable of is, uh, is, is, is a pretty exciting job. And we're pretty lucky to be able to do it. Maybe let's start with that then. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you became matched with Kylo and how long you guys have been a team. Okay, sure. Um, just to give you a little bit of background about myself, I've been a, a constable with the London Police Service for 15 years now. Um, K-9 was obviously something that I was always interested in as I was uh, going through my career with the policing and it was kind of uh, a career path I wanted down the, down the road. Um, so at about uh, my 12th year in the job, uh, I was able to successfully apply for the job and go through the whole um, process that is uh, required to um, select a canine handler. Um, when I was told that I was successful in that um, that job, uh, the canine sergeant then starts testing dogs um, that he's going to match up with the canine handler. Um, that's kind of how the process works. I don't get to pick my dog. <laughs> um, when, uh, when it was time for me to start my basic training course, uh, I was uh, paired with Kylo. Um, approximately about two weeks, three weeks prior to um, starting the training course. And that was kind of just to start to build that bond between dog and handler and uh, kind of figure out each other. And um, from there, we did a a 16-week general purpose course, uh, which is run out of here in London. 
uh, where Kylo and I learned uh, how to um, basically follow human scent detection and, and uh, there's handler protection and evidence searching and all that kind of stuff that uh, is all built into the training course that we did. That's awesome. Now, the, like there are, what, like eight different canines within London Police Service? Yes, that's correct. Uh, we have eight dogs in total that are uh, part of the London Police Canine Unit. Um, it's funny, we do demonstrations and stuff sometimes out in the community and people are always surprised to hear that there's that many. Um, but uh, yeah, there's uh, eight of them. Uh, two of them are specifically uh, just straight detection uh, scented dogs. And then we have six like Kylo here that uh, the general public probably sees more often than not. And they're uh, general purpose dogs. So they're trained in um, human scent detection first. And then usually after about a year, year and a bit on the street uh, working the human scent uh, side of things, we do what we call cross training them. And uh, we'll put uh, another odor into the dog that uh, they can detect. So uh, some of our dogs are cross-trained with firearms and uh, narcotics. And Kylo here is uh, one of two dogs that's been trained with explosives. So he's an explosive-smelling dog as well. Man, yeah. they are multi-talented. They Multitasking are. too. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, they're, uh, it's pretty, Im- pretty impressive what, uh, what the dogs can do and, uh, when you've got a highly motivated dog and, and what they'll work for. Absolutely. That's one cool thing that I've noticed from uh, the Instagram account specifically is that uh, like you learn more about their jobs and the things that they do. There was a post about uh, fence jumping, right? Yes, the other correct. day was that Kylo? Yeah, that, that was actually Kylo on yeah. there. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's once again like I, I we work with these dogs daily and to see uh, the physical abilities that they have is something that we wanted to kind of be able to show the general public that because they are kind of pretty athletic animals and uh, kind of your top level athletes of the yeah. of the dog world. So um, yeah, to kind of throw, throw that stuff out there and how be able to have people kind of see uh, how unique and how, uh, how much these dogs uh, uh, work and love to work is, is what we were kind of goal was the, of the whole account. Absolutely. And now you said before that it's, it's kind of taken off uh, more than maybe you thought initially. How have you, I guess, first of all, what's the response kind of been like from people and uh, what do you make of it, I guess? Um, yeah, a little bit of, sh- I mean, I, we knew that uh, as a unit, we got together and we, we started talking about, um, we have, like I said, the, the benefit of working with these guys every day and we see them and uh, it, it's, uh, it's we, maybe we take it for granted because now that we see it all the time, we're like, hey, this, well, these dogs are just kind of our daily routine with them. But um, when we were out doing demonstrations and things, uh, people would always ask consistently same kind of questions and, and, uh, and uh, so we were always answering the same kind of questions, which is great. But we're like, why can't we start to maybe put an account together where we can show the, the general public, hey, this is what these dogs are doing. They're out here working for the citizens of London, for the London Police Service, and they're, uh, some of the things that they can do are, are really unique. So when we put it out there, um, I guess uh, maybe not totally surprised that it's, it's been pretty popular because um, I think in general, the majority of people love dogs and love <laughs> animals. and so Guilty. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, um, but the fact of how many followers are kind of starting to starting to get going on it and, and following is uh, it's maybe a little bit more of a shocker to me and the, the rest of the team. Um, but it's a good thing. That's what we want. Like I said, uh, these dogs work for the citizens of London. They work for the London Police Service. Um, people should be proud of them and should be proud of the training that's gone into them and the hours that have spent uh, uh, putting into these dogs and, and how hard they work for, uh, for this city. So. Yeah, it's a really cool uh, outreach tool as well because when we look at uh, the work that London Police have done to build bridges in the community with different uh, segments of our community. It's it's just another way to interact and, uh, you know, put faces to names and um, let people know that you're here for
for the community to to serve it and to help out whenever you can. So it's it's another way to build those positive relationships. You're exactly right, and uh, you hit it hit it right on the uh, the nail on the head. Um, you know, uh, that's exactly what we're we're kind of out here for. Um, we don't own the dogs; the dogs are owned by the London Police Service. So technically, they are they're a taxpayer's expense, and um, so why not show off what these great animals can do and uh, and let the citizens kind of interact with them. And that's kind of, uh, was kind of the goal of the whole, uh, the whole two pages that we've got up and running. That's yeah, pretty cool. And it's, it's fun here. I don't know if anyone can, can hear it on the mics. Probably not, but Kylo <laughs> is being really, really well behaved. I think he's playing with a Kong of some kind. That's correct. Yeah. That's his, <laughs> uh, that's his favorite toy. So uh, when we first walked, walked in here, he was a little excited about what was going on around here and making uh, some barking noises. So uh, give him a Kong and keep him happy. And so he's, uh, he's in his element right now. That's for sure with that Kong. So, yeah. It's awesome because obviously just like officers, they need their downtime as well. Right. So they're not always uh, on guard. <laughs> Yep. I think the toy went flying. That's right, yeah. <laughs> He's chasing it. Yeah. He has very good instincts to, exactly. to follow and detect. <laughs> yeah. No, you are correct. Um, you know, these guys work hard and they're on, they're switched on when it's, uh, when it's, uh, shift time and things like mm-hmm. that. They're, they're high alert. And so when they come home, um, and people may not know this, but, uh, we as handlers are technically on duty 24 seven because one of the jobs of, uh, being a dog handler is that you've got to take care of this guy and so he comes home with us he's got a kennel at the, on our properties and uh so we're responsible for vets we're responsible for ve- uh, feeding them and all that kind of stuff but um it's nice to be able to bring them home and just let them be dogs as well yeah. because um like i said they uh, they work hard for us and we demand a lot from them when when we are out there working and so um when they have downtime we let them have their downtime just be dogs and, yeah. and just do normal dog things so yeah. yeah, and like how often, or I shouldn't say how often, how long typically does a dog stay uh, within that unit? And like, what's their career like as a canine officer? Okay. Um, so it depends. Uh, it obviously depends on the nature of the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, our dogs, uh, we work them for about five to seven years, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in that timeline. We usually get the dogs about uh, 15 to 20 months old, mm-hmm. uh, no training in them. And then we start the 16-week course and we're constantly training as the, uh, as the, as the year progresses. Um, but it also depends on injuries and things like that. And that just the general health of the dog. Um, I want to make a, make a point that, um, these dogs do work so hard for us, um, that we're not, uh, as a unit uh, and as a, as an organization, we have a, we have a rule that, uh, if the dog shows any signs of injuries or anything like that, uh, then we will retire them and we will let that dog have a nice family, like a, be a, be a pet again, basically. Yeah. Cause right now it's a working dog. And, um, so yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to work a dog till it can't even enjoy the retirement side of, right. uh, of its life. Cause like I said, we ask a lot of them, they give us a lot. Yeah. Uh, they love doing what they're doing, but at the, at the same time, at the end, we want to be able to just let them be dogs and, and kind of just hang out and do, and do dog stuff. Yeah. So, Chase yeah. some rabbits. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. Rabbits don't stand a chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I bet my dad would like to have Kylo come over in our, their backyard and uh, chase some of the yeah. rabbits that are it's, hanging uh, out. It's, uh, skunks seem to be the uh, big thing right now. Ah. Uh, the skunks are out in the cities of London. That's yeah. for sure. As we were working nights, you see a lot of skunks out and about. So yeah. you got to avoid those guys. Yeah. Kylo and the rest of them also need to make sure that they don't confuse raccoons as actual burglars with their <laughs> little masks right. on their faces, yeah. right? That's the trash pan. Does, that's, gotta that's right. Leave yeah. them alone. <laughs> well, yeah. So hopefully everyone is going to go now onto their phones, onto their desktops, whatever computer or tablet they have, and uh, follow along because it's it's great to see all the work that's being done and to learn more about these fantastic working puppos. They're they're fantastic.
Yeah, that's the goal of the uh, the accounts. Uh, like I said, they work hard for us, and uh, the citizens of London should be proud of what these guys do. And uh, we've now got a platform where we can kind of uh, demonstrate some of the, the great things that these dogs do for us. Absolutely. Well, Constable Matt Haler, thank you so much for coming in today and uh, chatting with us. And Kylo, thanks to you for coming out too. Thanks for having us. <laughs> So that was my chat again with Constable Matt Haler of the London Police Department's canine unit, as well as Kylo, who was fantastic. And you heard him uh, (laughs) playing with his toy there in studio and also uh, breathing a little bit there at the end, panting a little. Uh, Fantastic, fantastic chat with them and uh, really excited to learn more about the uh, social media um, growth that the unit is taking part in. So again, if you're interested in following them, which you should be, it's pretty cool. On Twitter, you can find the canine unit at canine underscore London. And on the Insta, on Instagram, their handle is London Police, all together, underscore canine. Okay, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're staying on the animal train. (laughs) Producer Jacqueline Carbone is going to come into studio and we're going to talk about this study uh, done by a Canadian group talking about fat cats. Yeah. So if you have a fat cat or you are a fat cat who's at home and maybe your owner leaves the radio on and you like to listen to us, uh, don't, I mean, I don't know. You might be, you might be triggered by this. So fat cats, beware. We're going to talk about you coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live, your Monday afternoon edition. Before the break, I said that we were going to stay on the animal train. And <laughs> let me read this to you. First of all, <laughs> this web article that uh, our colleagues within uh, Global put together, it's a Canadian press article, but the picture that Global chose to include with it is just, <laughs> it is the fattest cat I've ever seen. <laughs> so this study, uh, I'll read you part of the Global article. I'll put my news anchor hat on to do this part. A new study involving more than 19 million cats from across Canada and the United States suggests most of the animals continue to put on weight after they reach adulthood, and their heaviest weight is higher now than it was two decades ago. First of all, who among us hasn't put on a little, a little here or there? Let's not be too harsh on the cats. Researchers at the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph analyzed 54 million weight measurements taken at vet offices between 1981 and mid-2016 to get a sense of the typical weight gain and loss pattern over the course of a cat's life. They say the study, published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association this week, is the first of its kind to use such a large pool of data. Overall, the study showed cats' mean weight reached its peak between 6 and 10 years of age for the most common purebred breeds, Siamese, Persian, Himalayan, and Maine Coon, and at 8 for domestic cats. Male cats generally hit higher weight peaks than female cats, and cats that were spayed or neutered tend to de- tended rather to be heavier than those that weren't. The findings showed a difference of about a kilogram between one age 1 and the peak. As well, the mean weight of neutered 8-year-old domestic cats rose about a quarter of a kilogram between 95 and 2005 and then remained steady for the next decade. Hmm. And then the lead author on this says it may not seem like much, but half a pound is still a significant amount for a cat. Hmm. Some possible untested explanations for the shift include that more people may have begun to keep their cats indoors in that same time period or that changes were made to the palatability of cat food or in pet owners feeding behaviors Hmm. and also treats. 
those Whiskus commercials. And what is what are the ones I should mention also, as I, I said before, Jacqueline Carbone was going to come into the studio. Producer oh. extraordinaire is here, Jacqueline Carbone. What is that commercial with the cat treats where like they jingle the bag or jangle the bag and the cat like flies through the wall? Can... Oh, Matthew Trevithick jumping in. He's on it, he's on it. Yeah, Temptations. Okay. Yeah, those, first of all, marketing, hilarious. I enjoy that greatly. I'm not full full disclosure. I'm not a cat person. Um, I'm a dog person, and the dogs that I'm used to, like our family dogs that we previously had, uh, both well over a hundred pounds. So those those are big fellas. It's so, normal dog size, though. <laughs> well, well some. I guess it depends on the. Dog. I guess it depends on the breed. Yeah, our our guys were were big. That was their breed. They were they were meant to be big, um, big and beautiful. Uh, <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, but Jacqueline, you have had some experience with fat cats in your household, like in your your yes. family. Tell so, me about your fat cats. Let's see. How many cats have I had since I was born with a cat in my house? Like there was already a cat there. So we had <laughs> Tasha, Cleo, Jasmine, uh, Figaro, Simba, and Milo. That's a lot of cats. All the cats that have been in my life. Okay. Uh, so that's six. Uh, we also have a dog named Charlie. We had a couple hamsters named uh, Louise and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Thumb and Louise, which is awesome. <laughs> they were like little rascals. Anyway, uh, back to the cats. So um, I remember Tasha. She was a white cat. She's super beautiful. She wasn't really too big. She was always like on the on the more normal side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cleo was a chubby little chubby little girl. Um, she was a big gray cat and then ended up having a thyroid issue. So oh. like lost a lot of weight. So it was yeah. weird to like see that dichotomy there. Yeah. Um, who's next? Figaro passed away. He was, oh, he was always the lean one. We had So we had three cats in our last like time it was mm-hmm. figaro milo and uh simba simba is a huge guy we always call him like uh the fat friend uh, uh which like the fat like really friendly friend i don't know whatever we we're at home um and then figaro was always like the stoner and then milo was the jock because he was always like beefy um the things you do with your animals right so right. anyway so the story goes is simba is like really really it's a really big cat he turned yeah. into a really big cat just like super lazy but he's so loving and cuddly and he like really wants to be around you um, so he started having like these little fat deposits, like Aww. kind of uh, just like all kind of like all over his body here and there. And there was one on his tail that was like getting really big. Yeah. So my mom had them tested and they were like, it's nothing to worry about. Just a fat deposit. Like, it's fine. And we're like, OK. So like a year or so passed and we had it tested again. And then there was like this ball on his tail was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're like, what is going on here? Like, you sure this is just a fat deposit? They're like, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. And eventually we test it. They tested it one time. They're like, OK. And now it's cancer. Oh, so it turned into cancer, Not which good. was crazy. Um, and then we ended up having amputate his tail ah. so he's so cute little guy now running around without his tail like before it was weird but now he just looks so adorable oh boy and uh, he's still a chubby guy uh he probably weighs like 25 pounds as a big um, cat but he's definitely cat. lost some weight since getting yeah. rid of the tail because like that was kind of depleting his energy yeah. um but like we've definitely had some cats uh at least two or three cats who, who have been over 20 pounds yeah um possibly over 25 what are you feeding them I, I honestly i think i watched a documentary about cat and dog food and like how a lot of it is just full of like ah carbs rather than protein hmm, okay yeah there's there's a big push for like the raw food movement now for for animals and i actually have a friend whose uh dog is on a raw diet so and there's there's Ooh. a cool shop here in london that they go to um but yeah so that's that's yeah. interesting this study talking about uh you know cat weight and all that good stuff and thank you for coming in to, to talk about this because yeah, i did not realize that it was uh that it was that 
of intensive a problem. As not a cat person, and I am not here to ca- uh, weight shame any cats Those poor or cats. any people. You, everyone is beautiful the way they are. Um, but yeah, cat studies about fat cats out of Guelph. Very interesting. Jacqueline Carbone, thank you. Producer, other producer extraordinaire, Matthew Travethick today, thank you so much for keeping me on the air and uh, making sure we got this show done. All right, you are on to your next part of your day, Londoners. You're listening to 980 CFPL. Jacqueline Carbone is coming up with the afternoon news. Wrong job.